This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Sharon and Eric Lopez. Welcome to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. I'm Jeff. He's Eric. We got a lot for you today. Even though things are wrapping up, we're Eric, we're running out of sports all of a sudden. And yet we're ru- not uh, running out of news, so that's a good thing. Right. That's the good thing about us, folks. We can always find something to talk about. All right. We got lots to, we got lots to deal with here. Uh, baseball. Talk about the tournament uh, in Clearwater. UCF is in the winner's bracket. They're going to play on Thursday against Memphis, the eight seed. A little bit of a surprise there, but... Uh, we're going to talk about that. We're also going to wrap up softball in the uh, tournament, uh, in the NCAA tournament, as they get to the regional final, but come up short against Florida State. Special guest on our podcast, UCF track and field head coach Dana Boone joins us on the pod. Her uh, Banneret debut. That's right. Uh, and uh, she gets to talk about her team uh, and, uh, and several of her athletes heading to the uh, East preliminaries for the NCAA and, of course, Renaya Jones, who added a, a Olympic trial qualifying time in the 100-meter hurdles, her chance for her to uh, try out for the Olympic team. Uh, and then uh, also lots more to talk about. We'll talk about Andrew uh, Glukov's article on, um, the, football. on, one, on, on football. And uh, we got a start time for the Navy game. We got uh, 100% capacity for the stadium. Uh, lots of stuff to go over. But <clears throat> let's go ahead and uh, get started here by talking about UCF baseball. And uh, Eric, I think this team is starting to heat up a little bit, dare I say, because in there, uh, because here's what happened. All right, so last weekend, uh, they faced Houston, sweep them in four games. Uh, so the Knights have won, win five of their last six in the regular season to get to 500. All right, 500 before uh, at the end of the regular season. Then... They open up in the 4-5 game uh, on that side of the bracket against Cincinnati in Clearwater and beat them 14-10 in a game that it did not look like things were going the nice way. They were down 7-4, excuse me, 8-4, heading into the eighth inning, and all of a sudden UCF's offense just opens up, drops a nine spot on the Bearcats in the eighth inning, punctuated by a three-run homer by Jordan Rathbone, the uh, the unanimous uh, first-team selection, one of only two unanimous first-team selections uh, in the American uh, uh, in the American postseason awards. Um, since he pulled the couple back on a home run, but uh, Alex Freeland uh, with a sacrifice, that pretty much wrapped up the scoring. UCF gets the win, 14-10, to Eric Lopez. Uh, and this was... Uh, this was big for UCF to come back and do this, um, considering you know how you know it didn't look, it wasn't looking good. We were worried about oh my gosh the bats the bats are not are are not working right now and lo and behold off they go in the eighth inning and now UCF faces Memphis by the way the eighth seed last place in the conference who stunned the top seed um, ECU run ruled them eleven to one in the first game. Only played seven innings, and uh, now UCF has a chance against a team that they won three out of four against um, to get to the semifinals all of a sudden. So this is a big, big moment here for uh, for baseball. They kind of have set the table for themselves right now, haven't they? They have, but the question will be, will they take advantage of 
of it, or will it be a gift wrapped at an opportunity here with Memphis crushing East Carolina, who looked like a team that was more interested in just getting back to Greenville and getting ready for the NCAA tournament? <laughs> well, they couldn't have wanted to go back home Clearwater too for a week. Well, they couldn't have wanted to go home too soon because they uh, they actually won uh, earlier today. We're recording this on Wednesday, May twenty sixth. They uh, dropped thirteen runs on. Um, who are they? Uh, on uh, uh, on Cincinnati and eliminated and eliminated Cincinnati, Cincinnati. To get yeah to get to uh, the Friday game, so they're still going to be waiting the winner of UCF in Memphis, which is why you know if you're UCF you need to win this game against Memphis. If you go and lose this game and you got to play East Carolina in an elimination game, I don't like your chances. And look, if you win this game, you're one win away from playing for the championship on Sunday in a winner take all game. Uh, so the opportunity is there. You know what you need to do. You got to win the tournament to get into the NCAA tournament. It was kind of a wacky uh, comeback there. They didn't get the great pitching, but they found a way to score some runs in the eighth against Cincinnati. Now they face a Memphis team that, you know, they pounded Memphis when they played them three out of four, but Memphis did run rule UCF in the one win they had over them. So to suggest that we could predict what's going to happen with these teams in this league this year in particular probably not a good idea because this league is so up and down you know i spoke i spoke with bryce and turner obviously about that when we previewed the tournament and everybody's so up and down this year it's such a bizarre year for the league uh that you really i I just don't feel too confident in anything except that if i'm the league i was hoping east carolina would lose to cincinnati and i'm rooting for east carolina to lose one more time because if that happens you're guaranteed of being a two-bid league the um that's the only thing i'm sure about that's that's one of the interesting things I think that came up about this is the fact that only one team out of the top four in the American uh, stayed out of the losers bracket, stayed out of the elimination game after Tuesday, and that was Tulane. Um, everybody else is still in the, is uh, is in the uh, is in the losers bracket, including Wichita State, who, as we speak right now, is leading Houston, um, <clears throat> but. Uh, this is this is still a or, or it, it's Clearwater does weird things to people, man. I'm telling you right now, it's uh, we we've seen teams dominate the regular season and then go two and out. Um, UCF in particular, that's happened to before. Um, you know, it happened to ECU as well. Uh, and uh, and with UConn now out of the league, I think it does make it wide open because UConn was really built for postseason baseball. I really believe that under Jim Penders, having seen them multiple times. But um, but I, I think this is – right now, what odds would you give UCF of having a chance to win this tournament? Oh, wow. I would say about 20 25%. And I say okay. that because I think it's wide open. I think t- Tulane, 25 30%. East Carolina still has – I mean, it, it, it's like the – you know, the the – you could cross the pies here into a lot of different teams here. I think it's mm-hmm. wide open. I really do. I don't think there's a clear-cut favorite at all. I, I think it's this is up for grabs here. Uh, you know, does East Carolina, do they want to muster up coming out of the loser's bracket to win this league or not? Who knows? Uh, and this UCF-Memphis game is so big. Like, who, what, can UCF get quality pitching against Memphis? Can they continue the offense? Um, you know, if they can, I mean, if, you, if UCF can win this game on Thursday – now, all of a sudden, you have the day off on Friday. You're playing on Saturday, knowing that you only need one game 
to get to the championship game. You'll have the other team has to beat you twice. Mm-hmm. So you, if you're Greg Lovelady, you could set up your rotation however you want. You're gonna have all your arms available basically up yep. until that. If you can win this game, that's how this is a huge game. And I think if they can win this game, uh, now you start thinking maybe they can pull off winning this championship. But if they lose this game, now you got to play East Carolina on more on Friday. Uh, and now it's like, oh boy, you got to beat East Carolina, then beat more than likely Memphis twice. That, that's a tall order with this particular roster. But and, and I'm very interested to see how they if they can continue that momentum into Thursday's game against Memphis. Who gets the ball against Memphis? I'm very interested to see what Coach Lovelady yeah. decides to do there. And you know, but again, I, this team is going to have to outscore teams. I just feel it just feels like. This tournament in a double elimination format, you're going to have to score runs. I don't think this is pitching that is deep enough to win a low-scoring games. And I think as we go further in this tournament, everybody's going to depend on their bats. Yeah, the um, but uh, the interesting thing is that we've seen is that it's the bats that have woken up. Jordan Rathbone, by the way, 15 home runs uh, is the most home runs in a single season by UCF Knight since Jonathan Griffin hit 19 back in uh, 2011. It's currently tied for sixth most in one season. Very quietly, uh, he's had a time. great year. Yeah, he's had an outstanding year. Um, <clears throat> for a guy who really wasn't considered to be the top offensive threat this year, he's really come on strong. And I think you're right. They're going to need that. They're going to need a, a good performance from pitching. The good, the advantage is when you win that first game on Tuesday, because they had that quadruple header, is you get that day off. And Getting that day off, I think, is so key. And if you can win again on Thursday, you get the pass into Saturday. You get another day off. That's why I like how the American formatted this tournament, where uh, where you do have, um, you, you know, you, your reward for winning is that is that extra day off, right? And you can get a little extra rest for your arms. You lose, you got to come back the next day. And they did a good job of formatting the tournament. So, the, uh, uh, by the way, the Knights, as the five seed, taking on the eight seed Memphis Tigers, 3 p.m. on ESPN Plus on Thursday. Memphis 19 and 37, but don't count out uh, Hunter Goodman, who uh, is 316 on the year, 21 homers and a 699 slug percentage this year. He's And yet didn't win player of the year. They gave it didn't to Norby at ECU. I know. It's amazing that Goodman was that good, and Memphis still finished in last place. Which is which is kind of shocking when you when you think about it. You know, usually a guy that good, you know, he's going to count for something. But uh, nonetheless, uh, that's the plan for UCF on Thursday. If they lose on Thursday, they play on Friday. If they win, they play on Saturday. And whoever gets through, and if they win, whoever gets through the elimination game between ECU and Memphis would then have to beat UCF twice on Saturday. Tall order. All right. Correct. And at that scenario, I mean, it, it, again, the perfect scenario of your UCF is you beat Memphis. Mm-hmm. Then you hope that Memphis actually upsets East Carolina again. Right. And then all of a sudden, because East Carolina is capable of beating anybody twice in one day. They're, pr- yeah. in my opinion, they're that good. They're, they're number the 11 only, in the country. So, yeah, they're the only team that I think is capable of doing that. I, I, I late, this late in a tournament. Uh, but so if you're UCF, you would prefer. That East Carolina, you know, that Memphis, you beat Memphis, then Memphis upsets East Carolina again. You beat Memphis, you get to the championship game. Now you got you could you could bring back Hunter Patterson if you want, mm-hmm. you could or whoever. And then on the other side of the bracket is very interesting. 
You have Tulane who in South Florida, and I got to give Bryson credit here. Bryson mentioned in our preview that he likes South Florida as his sleeper because he felt they have the most depth from an arm standpoint. Maybe not the best arms, but the most depth quantity of arms. And sometimes mm-hmm. in a tournament Which is like what this. what you need in a tournament like this, exactly. could benefit them. And that's kind of what happened. They got to win over Wichita State. Obviously, it's their backyard in Clearwater. They're kind of the designated host. So I'm kind of interested by that South Florida, uh, Wichita State matchup there. And if you're UCF, you probably would prefer to play USF only because the two teams that really gave you fits was Wichita State and Tulane. You lost three out of four to both of those teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you could argue that the Wichita series could have been an even you know, split uh, if a call was made correctly in the Sunday game, if we had replay and things like that. But uh, at the same time, look, it's a positive. You win that first game. You mentioned it now, momentum. We said this last week. Can they get some momentum in that Houston series? Well, they swept right. Houston, and now they've got a little mojo going here. Their best winning streak, I want to say, of the whole season at this point. Five in a row. So you could punch, you know, if you could put that together against Memphis and make it six in a row, man, look out. Well, heading into this Memphis game, UCF is 29 and 28. And Eric, it's the first time they've been over 500 all season. Yeah. First time. The thing that makes me nervous, though, is just when you think they're ready to go that the right direction and something wrong goes and they could lose to Memphis. That's why I'm not making any predictions either way hey they're back no i'm not saying anything because i have not been able to figure out this team all year i don't think greg lovelady's been able to figure out this team all year except that they have had some injuries and have had to overcome a lot quite frankly um so and and, you know i would feel better obviously if they had colton gordon healthy but they don't uh so it's going to be interesting how they patchwork the arms here moving forward who starts and then who they use in relief and i'm very interested to see where st Clair fits in all this does st Clair's get the ball on Thursday, do they bring him out of the bullpen? Do they bring mm-hmm. him in Friday? Jackson Clare is going to be a key factor. Is going to be heard from before this this week is done. Yeah, I mean, or what, or do they go with AJ Jones? I think it depends right. on the matchup against yep. against the Tigers and and what Lovelady is feeling right there. So again, three p.m. on Thursday for UCF baseball in that in that game against Memphis to see who's going to get to the Saturday semifinal. On the uh, other side, UCF softball their season came to an end in the NCAA. Tallahassee Regional against the 10-seed Florida State. Boy, it started real good on Friday, didn't it, Eric Lopez? Against the Auburn Tigers, a dramatic 5-4 victory punctuated by uh, a five-run second where UCF got all their runs. But then it got really tight in the bottom of the seventh. Auburn had the bases loaded and one out against Aaliyah White. Uh, who uh, came into the game uh, in relief of Gianna Mancha. And first of all, it was spectacular uh, in relief of Gianna. But it came down to a double play at the end of the game and uh, a 1-2-3 double play by uh, Aaliyah White to uh, end it and give UCF the victory over Auburn 5-4. to four. It was probably the most dramatic finish to... Or, uh, Argu- not the most dramatic finish, but uh, maybe the most dramatic defensive finish to uh, an NCAA postseason game in UCF Knights history, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, I would agree with defensive finish. Yeah, I mean, Mariah Garcia made a great catch in center field in 2014 against Stetson, robbing him of a game-winning double and sending UCF to the regional final. But this was dramatic. It was on ESPN2. Uh, bases loaded, one out against Auburn. A lot of 
eyeballs watching. And Aliyah turning the double play, throwing to Carissa at home plate. Carissa throwing to first to Jazz, the Auburn runner. Stopped kind of enough to make that double play work and pull off a, a great win. No question. A, a win that's certainly be remembered. And I agree. It's probably the best defense, most memorable defensive play in UCF softball history when it comes to postseason. So UCF in the next game, they face uh, in the winner's bracket Florida State, but they lose the game three to nothing um, in back of uh, it was one to nothing into the top of the seventh. Um, two home runs uh, for Florida State by Cassidy Davis is what was, was really the entire uh, difference uh, for Florida State. A game that was just tight, tight, tight the whole way through. Danielle Watson got the save uh, for Florida State. So that pushed UCF back into an elimination game against Kennesaw uh, on uh, that same day, which UCF came up with the victory, 2 to nothing, uh, in back of uh, a couple of key plays, Jasmine Esparza's RBI single, and then uh, and then Jensen reaching on that fielding error that scored uh, Shannon Doherty to make it two to nothing. But a great pitching performance once again by Aaliyah White. Uh, she went the distance, gave up seven hits, struck out two, walked two, um, in what turned out to be the final win of her UCF career. Because the following day, UCF played Florida State. They had to beat them twice in Tallahassee, but they lost to them in the first game. Uh, two to nothing. Another tight one, but you know, let's give Florida State some credit here. They held UCF's powerful bats. You know, we talked about how good the offense was. They held them to no runs and a grand total of four hits in 14 innings against the Knights. Um, credit to Florida State pitching uh, as well. Catherine uh, Sandercock went the distance, gave up just one hit, struck out eight, walked only one. Uh, Aaliyah White took the loss, uh, even though she pitched actually quite well. Uh, only gave up five hits, one earned run. Um, but you got to hand it to uh, Florida State. Uh, they actually they move on from their, from that regional. It was, was going to be a tough ask for UCF to beat them twice in one day. Um, but they got it done. Uh, but Florida State was able to get it done. When you look at uh, at the end result of this season, Eric, uh, UCF finishing at 41, 19 and one. Um, coming up just short in the conference championship and then just short again in Tallahassee. What's the legacy of this year's team uh, in your mind? Well, it's funny you ask, because I have an article that'll be coming out this week about that, how this team helped get this program back to the national landscape. There's a plug right there. Uh, nice. Be a lookout, blackbillberry.com, everybody. Subscribe. Um I think this team helped them get back to the national landscape. This team, remember, this program has not been to the NCAA tournament since 2016. They had not won a conference tournament game since 2016. So there have been a lot of droughts, a lot of kind of skeletons there. And this team kind of broke a lot of them. They got to the American Conference Championship game in Tulsa of all places. So, you know, they had, they, they had more success in Tulsa than other UCF teams have had recently. So... I thought that was a positive. You get 41 wins. You beat Florida twice. You're the first UCF team ever to beat a Florida team twice in a season. Three wins against top five teams, including a win against Arizona. Um, you know, and you get to a regional final. It's the fifth regional final since 2008 for this program. It's the most that any softball program has that has not been able to host a regional. Think about that. Uh, everybody else that's hosted had had more regional finals have at least hosted at some point. Um, so I think they accomplished a lot of things. I think you go back to the Florida State deal. You mentioned it. The big stat there, this UCF offense feeds off extra base hits. 
doubles, triples, homers. Once somebody gets a double or a triple, the next or a homer, the next person usually follows, and next one follows, and that's how they score a bunch of runs in, in quick tempo. Uh, kind of like a football team. The analogy I used on Twitter is like a football team, but that goes no huddle that wants that depends on chunk plays. Mm-hmm. Well, Florida State held them to one extra base hit, and that was the triple by Shotpocker on Sunday in the sixth. Everything else was a single. They controlled their speed game. UCF did not hit a homer in the entire regional. Florida State hit two in that particular winner's bracket game. The one bugaboo ghost, if you will, for UCF softball is in all the NCAA tournament games they have been, every time they've gotten to that winner's bracket game, they have lost that game. They have yet to win that winner's bracket game, or as they now call it now, the NCAA, because everybody's got to be politically correct now, the 1-0 and game. Um so they've not won that game. They've always had to come back, either get from the loser's bracket at some point, and that's tough to do on the road, especially at Florida and Florida State, which is where they go because of the stupid 400-mile radius rule. Shout out yeah. to Danny White, who claims that all championships are decided on the field except football. Nonsense. None of the college championships are decided on the field, Danny. They're all decided by bus rides. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, as a result – Florida hasn't lost a regional in a decade. Florida State hasn't won in a decade. Nobody wins at those places. And for UCF, they couldn't get hits of extra bases. And that's you're not going to beat Florida State by getting three, four hits and singles in a row. And unfortunately, it was very eerily similar to 2015 regional in Tallahassee when UCF offensively only scored one run in two games against Florida State. So they've scored one run against Florida State in four regional games in Tallahassee. Um, so, you know, that's the thing, obviously everybody's asked me about this, so I'll address it. Yes. UCF was without two offensive players due to, uh, injury Kennedy. Searcy, we've discussed this on this podcast before she was out, uh, got hurt during conference play. She was the leadoff hitter. Mm-hmm. She was a huge weapon there. She's like a Ricky Henderson type for all you baseball old timers there. Um, they missed her. They weren't the same offense without her. And then there was no Georgia Blair. She was out. So, uh, they were not the same offense that they were, say, about a month or two months ago. And I think it caught up with them because Florida State, I think Lonnie is one of the best pitch callers in the sport, the Florida State head coach, and they will find your weaknesses offensively. And unfortunately, uh, they did that with UCF. But yeah. it was a great run. Aliyah White finishes with 99 wins, so she's like the Wayne Gretzky of softball. One we'll win shy of 100. That would have been nice. Yeah. They tried. Um, yeah. Maybe, you know, she has a tie there, but she's Wayne Gretzky. Still a heck of a career. Kira Klarkowski, three years of without making an error. Jasmine Esparza, 45 runs batted in. Only Stephanie Best has had more RBIs in a single season, and she did it three times, which because she's insane. I feel like Jazz did it pretty quietly, 16, 16, 16, too. I know that three. seems weird. It feels like Very Jasmine quietly, did it quietly. stepped up. Right, right. I agree. I agree. But it's a great year. 41-19-1. 40 wins, you get to a regional final, you get to a conference championship game in a top five league, and, you know, just wasn't meant to be, unfortunately, at the end. Give, you know, like you said, credit to Florida State. They made the pitches, and uh, but still a successful year for UCF. Real quick, who are we expecting to be back? Who are we not expecting back next year? Well, I think if you look at this team, obviously, the ones that are guaranteed obviously won't be back is Aliyah, Kira, and Jazz. Their, their, their time is up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Denali Schottpacher, who uh, will be back, even though she is a senior, she'll be back. Uh, I expect Shannon Doherty, if you look at the team, who are the faces to look for next year? I think Shannon Doherty will be back. She'll probably be the first baseman next year taking over for Jazz, uh, but we'll see. 
Uh, her, Jada Cody, who I think is the best all-around player on the team. Boy, I really love watching Jada Cody this year. Yeah, amazing athlete. He was great. Uh, plays above her years. So her, I think her, Doherty, and Searcy, if she gets back from her injury, will be the three cogs in that offense, plus a shot pocker that I feel confident in there be back. Uh, everybody else, it's kind of tricky because they have the extra year, but do they want to continue to play? Do they want to pursue? Remember, there's the transfer portal, so it's a little murky there. But I think they're going to be fine offensively. I think the young players, this was a big growing year for them, and I think they feel good about the youngsters coming back on this team. Plus, they're going to add a recruiting class. They're probably going to add some pieces through the transfer portal because that's what everybody's going to do. This is going to be the wildest transfer portal offseason in college softball history, probably in all of college athletics, really. If you think about with the numbers game, everybody trying to get back to a certain number and you got the extra years to deal with, I think it's going to be wild. The biggest question going into the offseason, who replaces Aaliyah White? You have Gianna Manchez coming back, I would assume, uh, but I think they're going to go after some arms. They got some young arms, but I think those are some questions. It's tough to replace an Aaliyah White. All the innings she helped, all the wins she had, uh, that will be the key question. But I think they're going to be good. I think they're going to be among the favorites in the American next year. And it's probably them in South Florida because South Florida is scheduled to have Georgina Cork back, uh, who's the best pitcher in the league. Wichita State loses a lot of personnel from their team. So uh, I think the future is bright. And I think the fact they finally got over the hump to the tournament, now the next step is, all right, we're hungry. Let's move forward and go back. All right. So – We'll be monitoring all those things during the offseason as we go. 41 wins once again for UCF softball this year. Bummer losing in the regional final, but hey, another chance for them to get over the hump next year. And we still have yet to see either UCF softball or baseball get out of the regional and get to and get to the uh Thanks a lot, NCAA, your four hundred mile regional. radius. <laughs> go stick your mile radius, you know where. Hey man, that's what wow. we gotta we gotta find a way to host. We gotta find a way to host. I don't know what it is, but, you but know we got to find a way. Of it, like, for, for, what's a shame is forget UCF. Like Wichita State got hosed. Like I've seen Wichita. Oh, State Wichita got it. Did you see what the Oklahoma? You see the Oklahoma coach? Yeah. She was saying. Yeah. After Patty that, she's, said, yeah, yeah, she was she's absolutely right. right. And she's right. And she's right. Like to my opinion, no disrespect to Florida State. I think Wichita State would have beaten Florida State. I think they're that good. They would have won. I think a good handful of regionals. Yeah. With their offense. And they have depth pitching. It just so happens they get bust to Norman uh, and go against maybe the most historic offense in the history of college softball. Like, I don't know if you saw that final score in the regional championship game. 24 to 7. 24 to 7. I've never seen that in a regional final. And Wichita's a top 25 team. Yeah. It's insane. Um, so hopefully the sport, and not just softball, this goes beyond softball, baseball, volleyball, soccer. It's time to get rid of this nonsense 400-mile radius. We all know why it's there, and it's because the NCAA doesn't want to spend money on the Olympic sports, and some. Uh, and I think that's nonsense. And stop making excuses about, well, they don't make revenue in this. You know what? They do make Football revenue. Football does make a lot of revenue for some schools. But they also lose a lot of money for a lot of schools that shouldn't have football programs. So don't give me that excuse because nobody loses more money than football programs. I'm well, going to mention well, here's, programs, here's the thing. But there's they, a lot of – But Well, here's, here's the other thing. They do make revenue. All sports make revenue, right? Yes, yes, it's, yes. It's a yes. question of do they do they profit or not, and that's not the question, right? It's the wrong question to be asked, and it's and I hate saying this, but this is another instance of 
the NCAA screwing over women's sports again. Yes, I agree with that. And it dri- it's it's been driving us nuts for for years yeah. now. Yeah. And it's it, and it really comes and it really comes to play in this situation with this with this 400 mile rule. We live in an era of jet travel. The NCAA apparently hasn't figured that out yet. Yeah, we're guys. Up, up, stop. Update with the times, right? Update yeah. with the times. You can get some cheap flights, by the way. It's not like that complicated. Right. And that and, and look, and I've been critical of the committee and seeding and stuff, but that affects how you seed a team. You can't seed it properly because of this rule because you're busing certain teams. How right. many times have we've said over the years, Jeff? Wow, I can't believe volleyball got sent to Florida. Well, because of the bus, you know. That's the tricky thing with all these sports. You can't truly seed the tournament correctly or fairly because of this rule. Right. And it's just unfortunate in that regard. I know. Just, uh, it's a bummer. But, you know, that's we'll see. All right. Well, we're going to put a bow on that one for now. But uh, the NCAA tournament continues with 16 teams. Um, real quick, Eric, who are you rooting for the rest of the way? I'm rooting for uh, LSU. I'm friends with their head coach, Beth Torina, who's a uh, Central Florida native, by the way. Went to Dr. Phillips That's High right. School. Um, They're playing Florida State in the, played uh, at Florida. in the Super yeah, Regional I'm Round. I'm rooting for LSU. Man. All right. Um, Oklahoma, I'm very fascinated by their offense. I'm just It's just so wild. I've never seen anything like it in college softball. It's insane. Yeah. They're playing Washington uh, so, in the next hey, round, too. Wa- Washington, all the Washington bros coming after you on Twitter, right? <laughs> well, they're not going to be happy after this weekend, more than likely. By the way, that series, game two of that Super Regional, ABC, first college softball game ever to be televised on network television. Huge move, step for the sport. It, again, it tells you people are interested. There, there's a reason yeah. why they're putting on ABC. People are interested. There's eyeballs. Don't they give think me the they idea. can get a good audience. That's why. They can get re- – and they can generate TV audiences. But somehow it's not making money. Okay, whatever you say, NCAA. Right. Nonsense. Right. But, yeah, ABC, and I think I've heard from sources – There'll be some of the women's college world series games might also be airing on ABC. So this might be the beginning of a trend. I, I would love to see the championship series on ABC. I think that would make for some great television. I do wonder great, if that's a possibility. Television. I don't know how it conflicts with the NBA final schedule. And remember the NHL will be starting up on ABC and ESPN starting next year. So mm-hmm. you could see some more, you know, that, that could be part of the strategy here. Who knows? But maybe you right, move I'm it very- to some, maybe you move it to like weekend afternoons. They Instead do play some time? in the weekend. We'll see. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah. I'm very curious what they come up with. I think we'll see based on the number they get on Saturday. That could be a telling sign as well. So All right. uh, uh, it should be a fun tournament. Florida, Florida State are in it. And uh, some storylines there. So we'll see uh, how it plays out. All right. All right. Let's take a break. quick break. When we return, head coach Dana Boone, UCF track and field. They're heading to the NCAA East prelims. And we've got one of the fastest people in the country on UCF. We'll talk about that with Coach Dana Boone. We return. This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon and Eric Lopez with you. Follow us on Twitter, UCF underscore Banneret, Facebook.com slash Black and Gold Banneret, uh, where we will be updating uh, UCF's track and field team as they head into the NCAA championships um, this weekend. Action gets underway on Thursday. Uh, the, uh, the meet will be taking place in Jacksonville and eight UCF, uh, individual competitors, along with the four by, uh, 100, uh, relay team, excuse me, four, uh, four by 400 relay team are, uh, scheduled to compete, uh, in the NCAA East, uh, East regionals, uh, in Jacksonville. And, uh, with that, with this coming up, you know, 
this is a, turning out to be a really big year for UCF track and field. We've talked earlier about, you know, Renaya Jones, who in the 100 uh, hurdles uh, earlier this season uh, set herself an Olympic qualifying uh, or, or an Olympic trial qualifying time of uh, 10 points uh, of uh, was a 12.73, I think it was in the in the 100 hurdles. Uh, a new school record. She's just a freshman, not to mention a number of other athletes we'll get to in a second. But Eric Lopez, you caught up with their head coach, Dana Boone, who has you know fought her way back, fought her way to get UCF back up into national contention. And here they are in the East Regional, right? They are. They get set to play, participate in Jacksonville this weekend here. And I had a chance to talk to Coach Boone prior to them leaving for Jacksonville on Wednesday morning. And I talked to her about the phenomenon that is Renaya Jones. Did she expect her to be this good this quickly? As well as some of the other performers. They're going to have eight athletes performing there in the NCAA preliminary round as they uh, try to chase down and make UCF history here uh, and taking it back to the glory days of the 2013 team and knowing the tradition. I talked to her about that. What interested her in getting back, getting to UCF to take over the program, recruiting in the state of Florida, plus how two legendary track field athletes who are coaches like to chalk trash that won gold medal in the Olympics in the past. Who are they? Find out right now as Dana Boone joins us on the Black and Gold Banneret podcast. And joining us now here on Black and Gold Banneret, the head coach of UCF Track and Field, is Dana Boone joining us. Uh, coach, how you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Good morning. Morning. So you're getting set for the NCAAs here in Jacksonville. I'm always curious, how do you treat this week for NCAAs? Do you treat it any different than you would uh, for a track meet earlier in the season? Do you treat it the same? Take us through what's it like from a preparation standpoint. Well, from a preparation uh, point of view, you know, we're coming off a conference, you know, you've got this conference NCAA prelim and then hopefully the national round. Um, at this point in the season, the work is already done. So it's more about racing and recovering and just making sure everyone stays healthy and just has enough rest at this point in time. We there's a saying a lot of coaches always say the hay is in the barn. So uh, it, it's it's so the work's done now. We're just um, kind of maintaining. What has this season been like for your program? It's such a unique year for all the sports teams for various reasons, protocols and things like that. What has it been like for your program? You know, we were actually just reminiscing about some of it yesterday and some of it I totally forgot. Like I must have blocked it out of my memory about, you know, even the limits in the weight room and how we couldn't all lift together and just some of the practice protocols and the things that we had to endure this fall um, to get to this point, you know, it's almost like you forgot all of that because you're now doing what you love to do and things are starting to return to normal. But I think everyone would say the sacrifices were well worth it. And, um, you know, we just want to end this year on a high note. And uh, that seems like such a long time ago, but, um, you know, I just, I always say the future's bright because uh, we, we've endured so much this year and to come out having a season like we are just bodes well for the future. What have you learned about your group this year that maybe you didn't know going in? They're a positive bunch of people, like all across the board. I, I love this group. They are positive and they're highly competitive. Um, 
I think it's fun. Uh, I like uh, the challenging and the the little little smack talking a little bit across the group, especially for the jumps and the and the sprints and hurdles. It's been it's been a fun energy to bring um, to the table. But I think they're all young, but they don't care that they're young. They just kind of like and so what so let's go you know and so that's the energy um that you love to see you see less fear and more confidence and and you want to you just they just want to compete that's the thing that kind of struck me looking at your team is just you're so young I, I i wonder if a part of you maybe feels like you're kind of ahead of schedule of some of your performers and some of the performances this year that maybe what your expectations were because of the youth yeah i mean i think I think, yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone knew. I knew Renaya was special. I didn't know she was going to be that special. And I definitely thought she could go under 13 seconds. I just didn't think she would drop that much under th 13 seconds so quickly. So yeah, she's definitely, um, you know, sped things up. But the youth of the rest of the team, um, I think it was a nice progression. I think there's still a whole lot more. It's like, with the COVID year, you you didn't get to do all the things that you normally would do. You know, we had to make a lot of sacrifices. We missed the first five weeks of training because we didn't have, you know, um, a weight room to train in because of COVID and trying to get all the teams organized. And so we were we were five weeks behind on a lot of our lifting and stuff. And that affects a performance sport like track and field. So um, you, you can't make that deficit up. And, and that's huge for, for some of these performances. Um, so I think, um, you know, we don't look at it like they're ahead of schedule. We just look like, man, there's so much more we can do. Because um, we haven't all lined up on the same day, healthy and ready to go. So once we've had one person healthy and then they come back, someone else goes down and then, you know, that person gets back and then someone else goes down. So we've never really fully performed at our full uh, potential, I feel like, as, as a coach. You mentioned Renaya Jones. She's been the big story this spring, obviously, running the school record 12.73 in the 100-meter hurdles, uh, winning the conference meet at 12.76. She's going to be competing in two events in the 100 meters and as well as, well as the hurdles. You mentioned, uh, tell me about when you first saw her, what makes her so special? She's been incredible this uh, this spring. Well, in, in track and field terms, a lot of coaches would look at her and say she's wired. She just has that um, natural bounce off the track and she has some of the fastest feet I've ever seen move. So when she hits the ground, it's a lot of force and, um, and, and it's just, she's springy and wiry. That's the best way to um, look at her. And then she's such a small frame. So she's, she's powerful. And at this point in time, I mean, really, we can honestly say that this year is her first year of actually really lifting weights. We lifted last year, but um, you know, when you're lifting the bar, you're trying to figure out how to lift. You can't really count that as actual <laughs> lifting. So she got to put some weight on the bar this year and actually, um, you know, get a little bit stronger. And that's, that's going to be her benefit in the years to come. She is so such a baby in this sport, I would say she is um, just barely scratched the, the surface of what she can actually do. There's still so many technical things to clean up on her, on, on her racing and her mechanics. And, you know, it, it, she's just a joy to work with. It's kind of frightening that she's only scratching the surface. I mean, I mean, a lot of a lot of uh, tracks, you know, would take their her spring for in a career in some cases. There, that's kind of scary. Oh, I would too, but I, I recognize that she is truly uh, 
special and you know you don't like to use that word often but she really is she's one of those few people that have the ability should she so so choose to go to that next level and be a world-class athlete i mean she definitely you know but it's it's so interesting with her you just um i think she's just enjoying this experience right now you know i think she's enjoying her team it's fun for her to be on the team and you know, she just signed up to try to be a sack rep for next year. So, I mean, she's just like, she's a great student. She's just a lot of energy, brings a lot of positively, positively, positivity to the group that, um, you know, she's just getting started and kind of focusing in on this sport and she's still not all the way zoned in. So that's, that's why you just look at it and say, wow, she's still got a whole lot more. That's pretty. That, that's pretty remarkable. And she's been well-spoken. I saw her on another UCF show podcast appear uh, and did a great job there. And, you know, she's been written about in other outlets as well as here on our banneret. What's that like for have to have someone like her who can represent your program the way she does? Well, it's been, it's, it's exactly what you would want as a head coach. You know, this is my third season here. Um, and so she was, she told me the other day, she said, I'm glad I could be your first recruiting class. I said, I am glad too. She was definitely <laughs> my first recruiting class. So it just gives credence to what um, our staff wanted to do in terms of building for the future and the type of athletes that we wanted. We wanted great student athletes. Um, and she is truly the epitome of a student athlete. She has great grades, a great attitude. She's well-spoken, um, just a sweetheart. I, I don't know anyone who doesn't like her on the team, you know? So, um, and even in the midst of all of her success, she's, she's very, um, still humble but yet fun and 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 this is a this is a team thing for her you know she loves the group she trains with her hurdle group and everything like that so everyone truly celebrates everyone's success so as a coach i couldn't ask for much more than that that's what we want as we build this program of course you won't be the only one performing at the ncaa so let's talk about some of the other athletes that are performing alexis woodley will also be in the 100 meter hurdles what can you tell us about her uh, and makes her what makes her so successful well, she is a graduate transfer. So she came to us having, you know, already graduated and um, completed, uh, you know, in college. So she brought some experience and, you know, she had a patch where she um, hadn't run fast in a few years. Um, so for her, this was about resurrecting and finding her, her greatness again. And, and that's kind of what the mission was. And, you know, I still feel like she still got some more in her as well. I think um, the way she's been training with Renaya, she's definitely has the capabilities of going under 13 seconds. And so I would just love to see that for her. Um, but she's she's been a lot of energy. Everyone loves her too. I, I just, I can't say enough about this team. They're, they're just a fun loving group um, and they all bring something different. Um, but I love her personality and, and she, I call her the dramatic one, but it's so, it's so funny. She just brings a great energy to the group. You mentioned the experience that she brings. Uh, is that something, is she like one of the leaders? Is she one of the keys from that standpoint with such a young roster to have somebody like Woodley who has that experience? Well, I think she does bring, you know, cause she's been there, done that. Um, but I, 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 I see that this group doesn't have a clear cut, um, leader, which is interesting. I just think everyone kind of uh, has a part. Everyone, I could say there's a role for everyone. Uh, everyone brings a little something to the table that adds to the group of, of on this team. And I think um, that's what makes this whole team special. 
You also have Latasha Smith, who's going to be in the 400 meters, uh, ran a personal best 53.88 seconds. She's from West Palm Beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, she finished fourth in the American Conference Championships. Tell us about her and her year and, uh, you know, certainly her, her potential. Well, you know, she, uh, we call her the little one. She is, you know, barely five feet tall, but she's just got these long legs and a big heart. Um, so, you know, you, you look at her and you're just like, what is this girl doing running the quarter? But boy, she's, uh, she's small in stature, but mighty in heart. And um, I just want the best for her. She, she's, uh, you know, she has had some ups and downs this season with little injuries here or there. So she's, you know, she's feeling good. I just would love for her to go in and the freshman records like 53-5. Um, and uh, that's what, you know, we, we'd shoot for. Um, and I think she can run faster than that, but you know, it just depends on, um, I always tell those kids their success is determined by them. You know, the, the hay is in the barn, the workouts indicate she's ready. So she's just gotta go out there and make that happen for her. But uh, I, I love watching her run and I, especially on the anchor of a relay. You know, I keep wanting to move her different places, but boy, she just does something special on, on the end of it. I don't know if it's cause she's short and she's got this chip on her shoulder, but boy, she starts coming for people. And uh, I, I love watching her run. Yeah, she kind of, yeah, makes it that edge there that kind of says, all right, well, I'll just put you where, you know, this works. Where If it ain't broke, yeah. don't, you know, don't fix it, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, long distance has been very successful as well. Of course, everybody knows Anne-Marie Blaney is one of the, gr- the greatest of all time long distance in UCF uh, history. So anytime somebody matches a record of hers, you're doing something pretty special. And that's what Charlotte Crook has done this year. Uh, I mean, talk about her. She will be representing the 1500 meter run. She's tied the school record held by Blaney, who set it in 2017. She's the first night to represent UCF in the 1500 meter at the regionals. And she's just a sophomore. Yeah, you know, thank goodness for COVID in some ways. <laughs> you know, all these redshirt years. Yeah. But uh, Coach Jackson has done a phenomenal job with the distance group this year. I think he's recruited the um, right people. You know, Charlotte was here when we got here, but we definitely saw the potential in her. And he's just done a really good job of developing her. And he told me a while ago, you know, she she loved the eight, but he always told me he thought she could move up and be pretty successful in, in the in the 15. So uh, those, those things are coming to fruition uh, for sure. But she brings, um, you know, just a, she brings the experience. I mean, she, she has been here with us for a couple of years and, um, and she's, you know, getting better and gradually you just watch the maturity of these kids from freshman year to, to you know, this is their sophomore year or technically it's probably her junior year, but sophomore year on the track. But um, you watch how they mature and how they're able to handle workouts and how they how their perspective changes. I mean, we talked to Charlotte and uh, one of her teammates and we were talking about, man, they were like, coach, I can't even believe I did that or look like that as a freshman. They're like, they look like athletes now. They are fit, they are lean, they are focused. And it's just, it's like night and day. And that's what you want to see as a coach, the development of your athletes to that level. So Charlotte's done a great job in that respect. Yeah, and, and no doubt she's done. And and, and I, you mentioned, obviously, you're, you're Brian Jackson, your assistant coach, who kind of runs the cross country in, uh, season. And I bring that up because their long distance for your program has been tremendous here. 
because obviously we've talked about Crook, but obviously Valerie Lestro dominated the cross-country season, took it by storm. Just take us through that philosophy and the job Coach Jackson's done with the long distance there because you are you got multiple runners uh, here that could be challenging a lot of Anne-Marie Blaney's records, both in cross-country and in track. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're in Florida, so you, you, you know, you don't want to, um, you know, I don't know that we're going to have a bunch of 10K runners or anything like that, but I gave Coach Jackson the charge of find the best, you know, half mile, 1500, 3K kind of kids and um, that can help cross country. And that's how you build your program. And if you find some kids, I'll make sure you get some money, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, because it's sometimes it's hard when you uh, have three sports, you kind of have to choose sometimes, like, are you gonna put all your money in cross country? And then you're going after one season versus going after two seasons. So he's done a really good job recruiting. Um, when he came to me last year um, and said, hey, I got the best, miler in the state that wants to commit to UCF I'm like of course we'll take her you know sign her up whatever it takes you know so um especially you know when these kids are gonna you know walk on other places just to be a part of a team when they can come here and make a difference and that's what Valerie has done for us and she's been you know a key piece to building this program so you're gonna see some we've made some additions for next year as well that are definitely going to help because when you look at the top five in cross country um we had some experience but there were some young kids in there too it was valerie and you know ali del rey and mackenzie krusik are all freshmen so um and then we had a couple you know um charlotte and uh um i believe tori um were um you know the veterans in that group so we're still once again we we got a young group so coach jackson's done a good job recruiting and building that program so look forward to a lot of that in the future we're speaking with uh, ucf track and field head coach dana boone here on black and go Bennett. just talk about your arrival here what drew you to ucf and then kind of building this program up like you are right now you mentioned the youth and the recruiting there I mean, track and field has great tradition here. Uh, certainly, uh, many a national champion and Ariel Scott back in the 2013, maybe one of the greatest UCF teams in all sports ever constructed. There's been so many great successful uh, track and field athletes coming from UCF, as well as obviously Anne-Marie Blaney, who's put cross country on the map for UCF and things like that. So just take us when you first kind of kind of what drew you to come to UCF and kind of how the process of building this program. Well, I mean, I think uh, anyone in the country would look at look at this place and go, wow, you know, Orlando, uh, um, Florida, a great recruiting state. Um, and wow, such a, a centrally located campus in a major city. Um, why wouldn't you take a look at it? So um, obviously, yes, Coach Carol Smith did a great job years ago um, in building this program. When you look at the record books, you're like, geez, how, you know, sometimes you scratch your head and go, how are we going to break any of these records? Those are, those are pretty phenomenal. So when Renaya broke the hurdle record, I was like, okay, well, hey, you know, that, that, that's good. Not only did she break the freshman record, she broke the actual school record. And, you know, looking at that at the time, you're just sitting there like, you know, 1281, that's, that's kind of fast. You don't come across hurdlers like that all the time. So to break that record definitely was, um, you know, um, a good indication that we were moving in the right direction. But I mean, this is just a great place. Um, and I'm just one of those people that I will take my time to build it and try to build it correctly. Um, we want to make sure we got 
good kids with good character and you know um, good grades as well. Um, our academics have have truly gone up in terms of what our expectation is and our team GPA and things like that. Those are the foundations for making a great team is that you have to have good character. Um, so it's not always just about running fast because um, you can always take people and add them to your team and there's a million transfers and everything. And But are they the right fit and will they help build and do they possess the philosophy of what you want moving forward as you build your program so we want good good citizens good representation of um you know like you said well-spoken young ladies um that can represent uh, our school well and 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 you know bring good press to to ucf so i look at all of those things were benefits um and and you know this wasn't the first time uh yeah kind of had to come in and try to, you know, kind of get a get a program back on track. So um, that's what you know. I just got to hire the right staff and make sure we we recruit well. We're only as good as the recruits we have, you know. <laughs> coaches, coaching, we're we're good coaches, but we're not miracle workers. We got to have something to work with. So um, you know that that was that is and always will be a priority is is recruiting. Speak to you because I've noticed at least from afar that you want to build your program to be all around talented across the board, which for people that don't follow track and field closely, that's not easy to do. You don't do just do that overnight. You know, a lot of programs sometimes will go, well, they're good at one specific thing, but then not in others. But it feels like for you, you're building this up for to be talented everywhere, have the depth everywhere, which takes time, but yet you've done it pretty quickly here, moving at a quick pace at least. Well, I mean, it, it's always a challenge because you only have a certain amount of scholarships. And so you have to figure out, you know, where, what you're going to do and, and what you're not going to do. So, you know, for us, there's certain events that we've decided, hey, unless we just get a super stud in there, we're just not going to deal with maybe like the pole vault or like I said, the 10K or something like that. So um, the areas in which we can be really good and have balance, you know, um, is what we're going to do and trying to get versatile athletes. Like you said, Renai can run the 100, the 100, the 200, the hurdles, you know, the 400 hurdles, she can run a four by four. You want to get those kids that can do multiple events. Um, so, it, you know, less one eventers and more uh, diversity uh, kids that can do lots of events. You know, I always ask uh, Coach Jackson, okay, they can they can run the eight or the 15, can they help us in cross country? And when he tells me they can help me in cross country, they get a little bit more, uh, I, I listen a little bit better and say, okay, so I would rather take the one that can help us in all three than just the one that can help me in one. So it's very strategic in terms of trying to find the best bang for your buck that will help you long term and um and, you know especially with a sport like cross country and stuff like that like charlotte's been here three years and she's coming into her own sometimes those sports take a little long longer to develop so you have to invest in these kids when they're a little bit younger in hopes that you know down the line they're going to be a big uh, factor for you um so i think that's kind of what we've we've done but it, it's definitely difficult um you know, you always feel like you need just a little bit more, uh, more money um, when you're spreading it out over three sports. So it becomes a little challenging. Speak to recruiting in the state of Florida. What is it like to recruit in the state of Florida? What's the talent level like in the state of Florida? And then also competing in the American Conference. Um, obviously, the state of Florida is tremendous and phenomenal in terms of its talent. There's so many talent. You really don't have to leave the state if you don't want to. It's just a matter of do the kids want to stay or do they want to leave? And, um, you know, 
it, it's um, for us, you know, most of our kids are from Florida. You know, we, we get a lot of Florida kids. There's a lot of benefits to having Florida kids um, in terms of building your team because you can you can do so many more things with, you know, bright futures and and, um, you know, other other type scholarships that help help you be able to get more kids um, in the in the state. So uh, love the high school kids. Um, in the state of Florida, always will recruit the state of Florida. Um, and uh, what was the second? The American Conference. What's it like being a part? You know, competing in the American Conference championships. Well, you know, uh, first year was totally different than this year. I mean, the first year here, you're like, okay, all right, you know, this is doable. We're 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 gonna be we're gonna be all right. And then this year you come back and you're in the same spot. You finish in the same position, but you're like, that was a lot harder to get fifth place in this conference and and you're looking from fifth to third is like 10 points and and so as there's been coaching changes in the conference the conference has stepped up gradually you know great i mean the top end of the conference is is pretty darn competitive you're going to look up and see a lot of uh athletes in the american conference that are in the national you know in this ncaa preliminary round and um hopefully for the good of the conference we have you know as many people from our conference make it to the national meet um so uh you know this is definitely going to be a competitive conference it's all it's going to be tough it's not there's not there's not going to be any cakewalk in this conference it's going to be a it's going to be a dog fight every year no i think that's what so much you know stands out about the league is how deep it is from the from a standpoint i mean obviously houston is obviously the most recognized they got the big names you know leroy burrell carl lewis have always been a part of houston i mean i follow that program at houston and ucf have gone at it since back in the conference usa days so i feel like i've known i've seen houston up close when i've traveled to houston in the past i mean what's it like to be in such a deep league and with programs like houston where you know track and field's a big deal there it's a it's i mean that in a lot of these schools they take it very it's a very serious and, and brings the best out of everybody. Yeah, you know, um, I've known Leroy. Leroy was on my recruiting visit when I visited University of Houston as a student athlete. So he was one of my hosts. So I've known him that long. And uh, we used to battle against each other when I coached at Tulane. So I've known that program and I've known him for a long time and he's won quite a few and I won a few too. But um, it just, it, it steps your game up. I know when I got this game, uh, when I got the job at the national meet, I saw Carl and Leroy and they told me they were like, we're coming for you. I said, coming for me? I'm trying to get to where y'all are, you know? <laughs> so the competitiveness there was was fun for me. I like, it, it, it's fun. And so, you know, we're all, we're all friends um, within the conference, but you know, we're all competitive too. And we're, we're all stepping our game up. I was like, wow. You know this pandemic everyone struggled but boy people really you know put some work in and and some of those performances were were you know nation you know highly ranked nation, national performances from our conference and and that's impressive to see and you always want to see that so i enjoy the competition we'll accept the challenge and we'll continue to work and try to figure out how we're going to get to the top yeah well, I didn't realize they were trash talkers, but then again, maybe I shouldn't be surprised considering <laughs> what their career oh, was in the Olympics. There, which yeah. man, it was all it was all fun. I I laughed. They're they're a funny group, um, and like I said, we respect each other, and uh, 
I, no, no, I didn't take any offense. I just kind of laughed and was like, all right, game on. I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, pretty wild. Uh, a few other athletes, too, that have made some marks this year. Uh, Selena Rita, right, 400-meter hurdles, first night to advance to the regionals in the 400 hurdles since 2017. Then you also, UCF, for the first time since 2013, will be represented in the long jump and the triple jump. Uh, Jasmine Scott Kilgo will be part of the long jump uh, as well. And then you've got Ashra Collins, who will be part of the triple jump there. Just talk about those three and their impact on those respective events. Well, you know, I brought in a new coach this year and he didn't get here till late, uh, really October. Um, and um, he's done a really good job with the, the jumpers. I, I recruited some jumpers because I felt like uh, you know, the, the field events was an area where we could we could capitalize and be a, a lot better in. And so Jasmine also is a transfer. She came in um, from Louisiana Monroe with Coach Smith. So um, so she has definitely um, stepped up. She she had an injury this year and didn't get to compete very much, but she came back the last couple of meets and and then showed up at the conference meeting, had a had a big PR. So that was that was great for her. Um, Ashira Collins, you know, I, I, I went down to Lake City and talked to her and her and her mom and they came on a visit and we got that deal signed pretty quickly. I knew she was going to be special. I saw her compete at the at the state meet and um, I was like, you just talk about a raw, raw talent. Um, so it was not surprising to see her come out here and win the conference triple jump uh, title. Um, Kiera Lee is also a young lady from um, Madison, Wisconsin, and I, I, she's so springy <laughs> and she is uh, still figuring things out. She looks so much better. She's, she's just uh, coming along and she hasn't yet scratched the surface of what she's, she's able to do as well. Um, you know, I think, I think she's still got um, some big jumps in there um, for her, but it's, it's nice um, to see her having done a combination jump um, this year. And I think like I said, for, for a group, if there was a group that missing the weight room affected a lot, it, it would be the jumps and the throws area. Not having five weeks of, of lifting um, really affects those areas. So I'm proud of the representation for the field events. Um, and that just tells you, you know, future is going to keep coming in that area. The future is bright. We'll, we'll continue to put the right pieces in place there and um, make our presence known in that area as well. Also, UCF will have a four-by-four relay team for the first time since 2017. The top 12 individuals in each event, along with the top 12 team relay teams, will earn a spot in the NCAA championships, which will run June 9th through the 12th in Eugene, Oregon, one of the great places to uh, for track and field. Is that something do you do even bring up with your athletes? Do you block that out? What What's the kind of the approach when it comes to that knowing uh, as far as that? No, they need to know what needs to be done and okay. they need to know the expectation and they need to know that, hey, you know, we want to get to Eugene. I mean, let's that's the ultimate goal. Um, and I even uh, I told them if they were like, coach, if we make it to Eugene, what are you going to do? And I was like, OK, because, you know, they always harass me about stuff. I told them I get my nose pierced if, if somebody makes it to Eugene. So um, I told him I wasn't going to keep it in there forever, but I, I would, <laughs> I would do that. So that's part of their motivation and stuff. Sometimes they need a little extra, but no, the relay team knows what uh, needs to be done. Um, and, you know, we're, we're on the outside looking in, but at the end of the day, 
um, anybody on any given day can can be beaten and it's about their attitude. I mean, you know, two years ago, we took a relay team, which, you know, we didn't have our fast our fastest relay leg on there. And um, we went to the meet and I said, hey guys, it's up to you guys, make up your mind. Either you're going into nationals or you're not. Now it's up to you, you four. And they decided that's what they were gonna do. And they, they ran 4374, I think, and, and made it. And that was that was on them. So that's what the four by four is. It's the same kind of thing. It's like, hey, we got to have a, we got to have an act of God, but you know, we got to be in the race and, and how, if we're in the race, that's going to be determined by you guys. So um, their attitude at this point, this is, this is about them and what they decide they want um, to get from this experience. And if they want to get, give themselves a chance to make it to Eugene. Two last questions. When you have a season during a year of the Olympics, What's that like? Any different, any more special, any more pressure? Uh, what's it like when you have a season on an Olympic year? Well, I mean, you just start seeing performances like you see this year. I mean, like <laughs> people start running crazy, like things that you just didn't expect. You're like, oh, must be an Olympic year. That's kind of that's kind of what you look up when you look up and you're looking at, um, you know, different conferences and you're looking at like in the hurdles, 12-9 doesn't make make a final. It's like, wait, what? What do you, what do you mean 12-9 doesn't, you know, people running 45 seconds and not getting, or, you know, or 46 flat or something and not getting a call back in the in the 400 uh, meters for men. You know, those are the, those are the indications it's an Olympic year. So um, people tend to rise to the occasion and performances always step up, but, um, you know, I, I don't know that you uh, approach it that much different. Maybe you want to race a little less if you feel like you have somebody that uh, um, might have a shot of having a longer season because of, uh, you know, the Olympic Games and the trials and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, I think the biggest standout is that the performances tend to go through the roof. Everybody's at peak performance in Olympic year. Got it. That's yeah. that makes sense. A ton of sense. Uh, last question. What's going to be the keys for success in Jacksonville and beyond for your athletes? What's going to be the key? We just have to stay uh, focused and we have to execute. We don't need to go in there and do anything uh, out of the ordinary. We're going to warm up the same. We're going to do the same things that we normally do. Um, it's just about execution. Now it's about those little things. It's like, hey, we need to put this whole race together. You know, you've seen the pieces and parts of it as you've gone through. So. Um, this isn't about nerves or anything like that. This is just about, can we get to the meet and properly execute what we need to do? And if we do that, um, we'll be okay and we'll have success. Well, coach, uh, we wish you very well and good luck, uh, this week. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. I know it's a busy time, uh, preparation, but boy, it's been a lot of fun to watch your team, your, your athletes perform this year, as, you know, and their individual performances and team performances. Good luck this week. And, uh, thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks again to Coach Boone for uh, joining us there. Thanks to Megan Herboff for setting that up. And uh, that was a lot of fun. I've never to get to talk to Coach Boone. You know, that's something that's been kind of on our radar for a little bit. Uh, what a year they've had. And that was kind of cool. Her talking about Carl Lewis and Leroy Burrell, who obviously have built a dynasty at Houston. Mm -hmm. Trash talkers, man. Come on. <laughs> oh, you knew that was. Those two guys, first of all, they did a whole bunch of trash talking to one another over the years, Leroy Probably. and Carl, yeah. back you know back in the days when they were competing, you know, neck and neck in uh, in the late '80s and early '90s. But you know, those guys talking trash over—I mean, 
First of all, UCF doesn't even have a men's track team right now. So what are they doing? Like, well, they run the women's program. I know they run the women's program, but it's like, come on, man. But, um, you know, listen, uh, the other part of that is like, it's also Carl Lewis. Carl has the right to talk trash to anybody because he's as Carl as he Freaking Lewis. Sing. As long as he doesn't as sing. As long as he doesn't sing. <laughs> so as long as he doesn't sing. You guys they should have memorialized that, memorialized yeah. that at, at the old yeah. Brendan Byrne Arena in East Rutherford. <laughs> anyway, um, just real quick, I wanted to recap a couple things. Uh, so Thursday, the, uh, prelim, uh, the prelims get underway in uh, Jacksonville. And uh, unfortunately, they're not televised, which is kind of a bummer, but... Um, who else are we looking for? We're looking at Jasmine Scott Kilgo in the long. Now there time. is a video stream of it. Uh, there is, yes, on the UNF website apparently. Okay, so, UNF is got. Okay, so we'll make sure that we send that link out so we can watch the, so we can watch it out there. But it's not on ESPN Plus or any of that kind of stuff. It'll be, it'll be kind of bare bones. But if you want to follow along, make sure you follow along. So anyway, uh, Jasmine Scott Kilgo in the long jump uh, on Thursday. All the prelims are in the first rounds are on Thursday, and then the winners come back on Saturday. All right, for the for the quarterfinals uh, at the very least going on from there. Uh, Renaya Jones in the 100 hurdles. You definitely want to watch that. And another UCF competitor in that event is Alexis Woodley uh, at 6 p.m. on Thursday. 6.30 is the 1,500 meter first round. Charlotte Crook of UCF is competing there in the uh, metric mile. Uh, so at 7 o'clock, they, uh, prime time, they have the big sprinting events. So 100 meters, Renaya Jones once again. She's competing in both the 100 hurdles and the 100 meter dash as well at seven 25 minutes later the 400 meters first round latasha smith is competing for the knights and then at 820 to round it out on thursday uh 400 hurdles first round selena wright is competing for uc up there uh and then uh saturday also they have the triple jump on at, at 315 uh a uh, shara collins and kiara lee will be competing for ucf in the triple jump uh, and then, of course, there's a bunch of quarterfinals on, going on through the rest of that evening on Saturday, culminating in the 4 by 400 quarterfinal, which, again, UCF as a team is competing in uh, in uh, late on Saturday. And then we'll keep you updated on the schedule as the uh, as the event progresses. And uh, hopefully we'll have some uh, nights advancing to the uh, to the national meet out in uh, Eugene, Oregon. Yeah, uh, that's the big goal June. here. But you know what's so amazing about this t- this program right now? It is young as heck, man. Yeah. Young. I think they only have uh, – they have so many freshmen. This is kind of the recruiting of Coach Boone. I think they only have like three or four seniors overall on the roster. They got a ton of freshmen like, you know, Renaya Jones, who is a, could be a star in the making here. And you heard in the interview she talked about building it back up to what Coach Gilbert had at UCF. You covered Coach Gilbert yep. when she was at UCF and that great team in 2013. They were so good all around. And that is Coach Boone's goal is to be good all around, which is not easy to accomplish in track and field. A lot of programs are good in one or two specific things, but they're trying to build it to be well-rounded everywhere. And it takes time to do that, but you're starting to see that with the youth on this team, not just in track, but we even talked in the interview about cross country and Valestra, who was tremendous during the cross country mm-hmm. year and her and coach Jackson, who handles the distance. This is a program on the rise and it's going to be back to, I think the levels that they had back in the early 2010s when they had the, those great track athletes and you had Blaney as the greatest long distance Blaney, runner. Yep. And then you had, you know, you had Ariel Scott, who's the national champion and Freeman and, and it just, this is a program on the rise. And again, credit Danny White. I think that was his last hire. I think we discussed this. Her, it was Dana Boone and Sidney Ball Malone was like neck and neck is the last two hires 
uh, big hires, big time hires. I was really very impressed uh, with these programs, and, and I think track is headed in a in the right direction. And I think we could be seeing some future Olympians on this roster, maybe one this year. Who knows? Yeah. Depending on what how Renaya does in the Olympic trials there when she gets to go to Eugene. Well, remember. 2021 Summer Olympics, three years we have another Summer Olympics in 2024, assuming all goes well, of course. Who knows? But um, in that respect, you know, Renaya Jones, when she's a senior at UCF, could be competing for another Olympiad, and I think that would be really fun to watch. So, uh, again, action gets underway in Jacksonville on Thursday. Speaking of programs who are building something, it's our chance to wrap up with tennis um, we talked last week about the uh, team competitions in UCF men's and women's tennis, um, seeing their seasons end in the dual meets. But that left us open to, to, to talk about the uh, individual singles and doubles. Uh, first on the women's side, uh, 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 the, uh, a couple of UCF uh, players were involved in singles, um, specifically Valeria Zaleva and uh, Rebecca Stolmar. But uh, they both lost on a Sunday afternoon in the first round. Uh, Zaleva uh, couldn't get through uh, Natasha Subash of, of Virginia, who was uh, ranked ninth in the country. Uh, and then Stolmar uh, uh, got beat by Georgia's Leah Ma in the first round. Um, so their seasons came to an unfortunate early end. But, uh, hey, congratulations to them I mean, even making it so far um, that they were able to do that they were able to do that two UCF players in the singles uh field of 64 is pretty impressive uh so it was unfortunately both of their careers come to an end but uh wow what a job by them on the men's side um the uh doubles team uh, uh Trey Hildebrand and uh and Bogdan Pavel um were beat in the sweet 16 uh in particular they um Lost to, uh, who did they lose? Oh, the two guys from South Alabama. That's right. Loic Cloes and Clement Marzel, 7-5-6-4. Really came down to just two breaks in that round of 16, which was a bummer. But that left us with Gabe DeCamps, who made a heck of a run. After a a brutal first-round match, he ended up making it all the way to the uh, the, uh, NCAA quarterfinals, where uh, he came up short against the number one team, the number one player in the country, Liam Draxel of Kentucky, seven uh, six, went eight six in the tiebreaker in the first, and then six one. Um, it's one of those matches, Eric, where you feel like you know he probably could have gotten to the semis had he won that tiebreaker, because I think when you yeah. lose a tiebreaker in the first set in a best of three, it's a it's a really demoralizing thing. But, um, and, and I think we saw that, you know, it's when you spend all that energy, you know, it's it, it's hard to come back and try and get that second set. But, uh, but hey, Gabe DeCamps, man, what, what a job. One of the top eight singles players in the country in the NCAA. And like you said, uh, many times before on this podcast, you fully expect him to be, uh, to, you fully expect us to hear from him uh, a lot more in the future uh, in, in the professional ranks eventually when he does get there. Oh, there's no doubt. And and look, I think the other thing to keep in mind is in the singles competition, there's no days off. So to right. amplify losing that tiebreaker was huge because you're, 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 you don't have a lot of break. It's not like you had a day off and things. And I think he kind of ran out of gas once he lost mm-hmm. that first set, losing a number one player. Uh, that tends to happen there. But yeah, I mean, no question. He's a junior. I don't know what that means, if he'll be back or not. Who knows how that works in tennis, what he wants to do. But 
regardless, he, his legacy is cemented here to get to the quarterfinals. Think about this. Prior to this, Corey Lovett was the only other UCF player to have even won a match in a NCAA tournament singles competition. He got to the round of 32. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, he to camps is the first national seed in the history of the program in a singles tournament NCAA. Uh, he is the first player to reach the quarterfinals from the American conference since South Florida's Roberto Sid did it in 2016. Uh, you look at him. He, he, he's also going to be the first UCF player to qualify for the NCAA singles tournament tw- multiple times. He will be the first player in school history to be named an All-American multiple times as he will, you know, for being a seed, a national seed, he's going to be an automatic uh, All-American. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can go on and on about him. It is an, an incredible year. Uh, the greatest singles tennis player in UCF tennis history, period. And uh, he's, uh, it's an amazing year. We were glad we had him on earlier in the year. Hopefully he comes back. He's just a junior next year. Yeah. But at the same time, if he decides to go pro, if that were if that's what he decides to do, then you know he's got options. That's for sure. And I, he's got a lot of tennis left in him. And uh, what a moment! What a run for for the program. A great year for both tennis programs. Sweet sixteen for the women. Uh, you you get two players to qualify in the singles. Yes, I know they lost in the first round, but keep in mind they've only had one other player qualify for a women's singles prior to twenty nineteen. So. They've kind of, and then the men's side, you have a doubles team and you got to camps to go along with the men's team hosting the tournament, national seeds, winning the conference championships. Just a magical year for both tennis programs. And when we do our bannies later in the year, I think the camps is the favorite for male athlete of the year. And these two tennis programs could be fighting against each other for maybe the team of the year in UCF. You know, what's fun about this is even with all the success that we've seen on the tennis court. I still feel like they haven't peaked yet. No. The, neither no. neither program has reached a point yet where they're like, okay, this is about where we should be in the national picture. No, they're still climbing the ladder. That's what I think is the most exciting thing about both of them. I agree. And that's that's, that's it's the beginning there and uh a lot of they still got a lot of talent coming back. And yeah. so uh hopefully uh everybody is, gets back and the coaches stay back and they can take care of and uh, but magical, magical year uh, for both programs. They're pretty remarkable. It's just crazy to think of it. We're talking about a tennis UCF tennis player making it to the quarterfinals of the NCAA championships. It's just yeah. wild. It's just wild that we're even saying it. But it, it's reality, and it's uh, and the cool thing is, I think a lot of fans caught on to that. Her, you know, and, I, and I, that's the thing I've been real pleased with over the last few weeks from UC, uh, over in social media and the fan, give the, the UCF social media a lot of credit for this. But I think a lot of the UCF fans, but I, I was watching social media. There were people that had the game at the camps match on. Yep. People were watching last weekend. Uh, there were sports bars that had the softball games on. Renaya Jones has been being interviewed like uh, on other shows. And I think that's a great thing. I think it's an applaud to everybody that, hey, you know what? You're a UCF fan. You're, if you went to school at UCF, this is what it's about, man. It's about following how the other UCF teams, I get it. They're not, it's not football. It's not the most popular sport, but that doesn't make them any less black and gold. And I think it's cool that you're following your fellow alums, future alums, and, and representing the university the right way. Amen. You're absolutely right about that. So that's that's been fun to watch. All right. So congrats once again on tennis uh, to both uh, to everybody who participated in the NCAA's. Um, congrats to Gabe on a job well done. And uh, wow, here's to that. Here's to those teams and those coaching staffs for um, for such a great season and 
one thing we know is that they're not they're not satisfied with even how they finished out. So it's going to be fun to see what what they have in store when they start up again in the fall. All right. When we come back, speaking of the fall, news on UCF football and how many fans we're going to have in the stands at the bounce house when UCF opens up against Boise State, plus uh, a couple of other things we wanted to talk about with football when we return. It's the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon and Eric Lopez with you. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast if you don't already uh, on uh, Apple Podcasts. Or if you are an an Android user, make sure you subscribe via Spotify. We're available on Spotify as well. Leave us a comment, uh, which you can do easily on all those platforms. Let us know how you're doing. And also share this podcast with your friends. Tell them about it. And let let them know that uh, we are the longest-running continuous UCF podcast uh, on the web right now. So if uh, you've been listening to us, you know that we've also been following the latest with UCF football and we got some big news today, Eric Lopez, as we're recording this again, Wednesday, May 26th. 100% capacity. UCF is planning for 100% capacity at the football games for 2021. Uh, according to a release from UCF, that's part of UCF's plan to return largely to a pre-COVID environment beginning June 23rd, which is just before the start of the Summer B academic term. As of that date, physical distancing requirements will be eliminated and full participation will be allowed at UCF Athletic and social events. The decision to update UCF guidelines follows guidance from the Florida Board of Governors, which oversees the state's 12 public universities and is in collaboration with other state university system institutions. This is big. We were hoping that this would happen, and we finally got confirmation of it. Uh, Terry Mahajer, athletic director, said uh, that he was really excited for this, obviously. I mean, this it's, it's great. Nature is healing. Uh, it looks like we're going to have a full bounce house for that uh, opening game uh, for that opening week game against uh, Boise State, and uh, there, there's nothing bad about that, right? No, hey, positive direction. Just keep just keep it going in the positive direction is what I would say. Do you think we're going to? Do you think we're going to get a sellout for Boise State? Uh, that's a good question. You know, because I think. What's your definition of a sellout? Like every like a seat sellout, would... every seat. No, I don't think every seat. No, really? uh, no, because I think you're still going to. It's a Thursday night. Well, I think it's. Well, going to be We don't Thursday know night. if it's going to be right. a Thursday night right. or not yet. I think yeah, now. By the time now, here's a heads up. By the time you're listening to this, ladies and yeah. gentlemen, we may know. Right. Um. I think that's part of it. I do wonder. One of the things I'll be interested in seeing moving forward: how many fans. Just go back and say, yeah, you know, everything back to normal. How many say, you know what? I'm good just watching it at home. I've got used to it. I'm okay. I'm going to be curious to see how that all plans out. The fact that it's Gus's first game will help, I think, create. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I think it's going to be a close to packed. But, you know, I, I will be curious how that kind of goes out. Plus, you got to think about how many people from Boise are making the trip. Yeah. Are they make it a big, you know, so that also impacts the sellout part. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a packed house. I'd be pretty close to it. Um, and I, I would think it'll be exciting. Again, I, I would assume everything's going right in the right direction and we're in good shape at that point. But I do, I'm curious to see how many people, I mean, there's going to be a good majority that'll say, yeah, we're back to, we've missed this for a while. But I do, I wouldn't be shocked if there's a few people that say, yeah, you know what? I'm in a, I'm, I'm good watching the game at home. We'll see. I'm very curious. I, Not just for UCF, by the way, just in general, in sports in general. 
as it starts to open up, I'm curious how fans will react to that. I'm curious about that as we go later on into the season, but I think for that first game back, it's going to be jam-packed. It's going to be like roaring 20s, man. It's going to get wild because I think so many people have been starved of the experience of non-physical, physically distanced college football in person that I, I don't think it matters when the game takes place. They're going to be there. We'll see. Yeah, we'll yeah. see. I mean, it should be. We'll see what time it is, what day it is. I, I expect it to be a Thursday or Friday game, and I think it's going to be Thursday. If I, you know, but we'll see when we officially comes out. Yeah, we'll see. I think uh, I think it was the ESPN is supposed to announce like their their full slate of games for, like the first three or four weeks. I think this week is that right? Yeah, that's what I've heard as well. Right. So we'll probably be breaking that down on the banner. We'll probably break that down on next week's show. Next week, uh, yeah. If not, you know, sooner. So, but that's well, obviously and then the Louisville game. Uh, we should know what time that game will be. That's going to be a Friday night game. We know that, but what time? And then, you know, is it ESPN, ESPN 2? Uh, we right. should have also get to figure that out. Maybe we find out the Bethune home Bethune home game. Mm-hmm. Uh, On the 11th. I, I'm going to make – I mean, I'll do my projections here. Uh, I think that's an ESPN Plus game. I think that's an I think ESPN you're, yeah. 6 o'clock game. I think yeah, you're that's probably a- right. Louisville, you think Friday night, you think that goes on ES- on the mothership or ESPN 2? Yeah, that's a good question. I and the tricky so part Friday, about Friday. It it's supposed to be a Friday night. It is, but we don't know if, for example, is, is ESPN going to carry baseball that night? Because in the past they've carried yeah. some Friday night baseball, so that could bump it from ESPN to ESPN two, uh, depending on what the schedule looks like. So I don't know. It's a good question. It's it's uh, going to fall under the ACC umbrella because it's at Louisville, right? So, so but I, I I think it'll be an ESPN or ESPN two game probably around seven ish seven o'clock okay. I would say I would say that that would be my prediction. Okay, Maybe Boise, no later than eight than eight. I would be uh, you know just because of the standpoint of sometimes they like to do a pregame show leading into the kickoff. Yeah, you know a game we don't have to do a prediction for mm-hmm. the Navy game, October second Saturday. Uh, it was announced earlier today, three thirty p.m. kick. It's the only game that we know. Exactly what television, exactly what the television will be, and exactly what kickoff time will be out of the schedule as of Wednesday night, May twenty sixth. Uh, the game at Navy Saturday, October second, in Annapolis, will be uh, three thirty p.m. on CBS Sports Network as part of Navy's agreement. The serv- the service academies have agreement with CBS, where CBS will televise uh, select Army, Navy, and Air Force uh, games as well. So. Um, uh, so that's the one thing that we do know that it's always a tough place to play. Same exactly, same exact uh, kickoff time and network that of the 2017 game. By the way, when UCF what beat is, Navy, what are some of the games that are t- taking place that day that we know of that maybe on that day? Oh, I don't yeah. know. You have to look that up uh, for sure. But I do think my expectation, the thing that's going to be really good that's going to help UCF fans, I think here, we should know the kick times for Boise, Bethune. Louisville and Navy quickly here within the next Mm -hmm. few days, I would think. And really, I don't think we'll have to worry about a quote two week window until that East Carolina game, October the 9th. So a lot of fans, I will say this, you know, we'll be able to prepare for those first four games. If people are going to go to Louisville, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think we'll have a good broad idea that first month. And I expect Gus to get a lot of nice marquee slots because of the Gus Malzahn storyline. Yeah. I think UCF will be very friend, get some friendly TV slots uh, as long as they, you know, start off with some good wins. 
By the way, UCF Navy, 3.30 p.m. on Saturday. You know what game that's on across from? We know for a fact it's on across from. All right. Cincinnati at Notre Dame on NBC. That could be a really big game. Yeah, 2.30 kick for that one. That would be really interesting. If if Cincinnati can go up to South Bend, I mean, boy, that would be something. Didn't Marcus Freeman, the... Marcus Freeman, the D coordinator for Cincinnati, didn't he go to Notre Dame? Took the job there? Let me see. Did he go to Notre Dame there? I, I forget the offseason moves, man. It's, let's see here. I thought Notre Dame hired him, um, or at least went after him. But that's a that's a pretty interesting game, Marky. Yeah, he is with Notre Dame. There it yeah. is. So huh. there's your storyline there. Interesting. Not that it really mattered in NBC picking up the game. It's in South Bend anyway, which NBC always televises. But No, but it's just a fascinating storyline in that game with Cincinnati and Notre Dame. And Cincinnati, obviously... Uh, we'll try to make a big statement here from a national standpoint, maybe for the playoff. If you're to beat Notre Dame, that will yeah. get them uh, really highly ranked. Oh, yeah. which is a good segue. Marquee non-conference games. Well, wouldn't you know about that? Because uh, <laughs> among the many things that we wanted to talk about here uh, on Black and Gold Banneret, uh, the big column this week that's getting us, that's getting a little bit of attention written by our friend, uh, stat boy Drew, Andrew Glukoff, uh, Danny White's scheduling overplay haunts UCF is the header. Basically, Andrew's argument was that, you know, Danny White did a lot of great things. But uh, Drew's argument, I don't know if I agree with him 100% on this, but his argument was that when when Danny White said that UCF was not going to take any two-for-one deals with power conference teams that – Basically, it poisoned the well with the uh, with other athletic directors in the Power Five, and then he got into the the sort of public spat with Scott Strickland of Florida, and White got painted into a corner. He couldn't, and so he ended up doubling down on the no two for ones, and then that ended up freezing UCF out uh, in the in the schedule race because as of right now, uh, UCF's schedule is still pretty bare now. The Knights earlier this week did announce a home and home with FAU, so the 2022 schedule is 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 locked in. Now I know you say that, Eric, but good thing about 2022, and this is what I think is really interesting. I think UCF has a pretty tough schedule in 2021, but in 2022 it breaks fairly favorably because of your four non-conference games, your only two road games are in the state of Florida against FIU and FAU. So, well, I, I don't I don't anticipate both FAU and FIU staying on the schedule there. I, I think that FIU game could get moved from what I've heard. Okay. All right. Well, we I, thought, I would, you yeah, said I that you thought that they would move it for FAU, but apparently they haven't yet. Not yet. Doesn't mean they won't. Still early. Okay. Fair enough. Still, that games can get moved at any moment. Uh, so we'll see. But point taken, it's a much more favorable travel schedule uh, in 2022 is the way yeah. it's being set up. I don't. I don't mind staying in the state of Florida until you know until conference play. I'm sure Gus Malzahn doesn't either. <laughs> no. Uh, look, Andrew's article is very good, and I see both sides of it. Yeah. Uh, I tend to side on Andrew's side. I think Danny made a big mistake from the standpoint of making that public, because I don't know why he thought he had any leverage. He was never going to have any leverage, and now by opening that out loud, you were just going to turn off even more people against you. Uh, the way this works in college football is the big brands dictate what they want to do. You don't get to dictate it. Like the, the, if UCF disappeared tomorrow, college football moves forward. I'm sorry. That's just reality. So 
the question and Andrew brings up in the article is what does UCF want to do? Is it about quantity or quality? Now I could see both sides of it. You want to get seven home games. You want to make as much money. I get all that. You, you puff up the schedule where you can try to be undefeated every year and keep the fans excited and try to get to new year six and, you know, go with that. The gamble with that is what if you don't go undefeated? What if you go six and four? Oh wait, like you just did last year. Fans, the, the generation of this fan base is not like it was you and me, Jeff, where we would just go to every game regardless of win-loss record. The second any team loses nowadays, they will turn you off and they will stop going, uh, especially with TV the way it is with HD. So I do think there's a risk by going with seven games, and I don't believe that's the only way to make money. I think you have to be adaptive. You can be creative. You, I mean, UCF made money playing in Ireland against Penn State in 2014. So you mm-hmm. can make money playing road games. Now, I'm not saying, and I think the problem is some people think, take it to the extreme and say, oh, well, I don't, you know, so Terry's going to schedule all these two-for-ones. Terry Mahajer has never said that. He has never said, I'm just going to do two-for-ones. I All he is doing is he's being open-minded to different ideas, which I think you have to be when you're scheduling. And I don't think Danny was. I think Danny put his foot down, and once he made those public comments, there was nowhere for him to go because if he went back on that, people would you'd say, well, why did you – you said this and said that. I think that was the calculated mistake yeah. that Danny made there. I, I, I you know, Terry is here, and, and, and it's pretty clear from what he's been saying publicly that you know this is kind of a mess that he has to clean up now, right? Yeah. And I thought this quote that he gave to the Sentinel was, was a pretty good quote. Um, we're in a really tough situation. This is Terry Mahajer speaking to the Orlando Sentinel. Quote, we're in a really tough situation right now because we don't have a lot of games. I pride myself in being pretty strategic in our scheduling. Of course, he's talking about his time at Arkansas State, which he did a very good job at if you look at the, at the schedules that they put together over the years. But it's going to be challenging to really strategically set up our schedule based on philosophies because we just don't have games. He's talking about the future schedules, which are pretty bare right now. We've got to go get games. Some of the teams that we probably wouldn't have played or thought about playing, we're going to have to play. That's no knock on anyone, but we have a different philosophy in how we schedule, and we're just behind the eight ball. We've got to jump on it. We're still trying to get games for next year. I was scheduling games for 20, 30, and 31 at my last place, Arkansas State he's talking about. Right. Now, in, now, one thing we know is that in the world of ADs, okay, ADs are very complementary towards one another. It's the, the, uh, the unwritten rule about being an AD is thou shalt not speak ill of any other AD right? That's about as sharp a contrast as you'll hear an athletic director ever draw with their predecessor publicly right there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And he's right. He's right. Yeah. He's right. Because here's the problem. You don't want to get caught in college football. You don't want to be caught in a situation where you're scrambling for games because now you've got no leverage and that's where they're in right now. There you got no leverage but you still have to fill out a schedule and now your options are well if you do you want to play the best teams well you're probably gonna have to do it on their terms but if you don't you may have to play two fcs teams in your schedule which has you know if you don't schedule correctly could happen i would argue that this year's schedule includes two fcs teams in bethune and connecticut so uh (laughs) thank you thank you um but that's the big debate and that's the question that andrew has is do you want quantity or quality 
Do you want to be in the conversation for the playoff? Do you want to be ranked as highly? You're not going to do that playing FAUs and the FIUs of the world as your marquee games. You're going to have to schedule people. And nobody knows that better than Terry, who was in the playoff committee. And people can be skeptical they want about the playoff committee, but he was in there. And he knows what it takes. And he said it. You win games you're supposed to. You win games you're not supposed to against marquee teams. You're going to have a shot to make the playoff, especially if it expands you know, in 2025, 2026, let's say 2025, 2026, they expand to eight teams or maybe 16 teams or 12. You better make sure you have a good schedule to put yourself in a position to make the the, the postseason. Because don't assume that just because you win the league, you're going to get guaranteed a spot. And I think that's Terry's point on all this. It's not just about this year, next year. It's about the future. What if the playoff expands and you're caught with a weak schedule? You're still mm-hmm. going to get left out. Yeah. You know, there are some interesting teams that have that still have some openings. You know who one of them is? Go ahead. Tennessee. Hey, Danny, how about a home and home? Well, they have openings. Their, their schedule is full in 2022 and 2023, but they've got three openings in 24, three, all, four in 25, three in 26, three in 27, and three in 28. So <laughs> when I'm looking at it there, I'm like, hey, now, I think that Tennessee actually falls right in the wheelhouse of the exact kind of team. And we touched upon this in last week's show. The exact kind of team that UCF can can work with, right? It's, it's going to be extremely difficult to deal with the Alabamas, Floridas, Georgias. Correct. You know, Clemson. Put them aside, all right? But Mississippi State, Tennessee. Mizzou, Kentucky. I'd like to see some Pac-12 teams maybe think about Connor. We had Stanford a couple years ago, right? Maybe a team like maybe some Big Ten teams might be interested, like Minnesota. Well, right? here's the other thing, right? Like maybe Tennessee doesn't want to play a home and home, which would be hilarious, and then we'll just Danny will look bad in that. But <laughs> think about this: why not use a camping world to your advantage and play a one-off? Because there was, remember, there was yeah. rumors that Tennessee and UCF were in talks to play, but that Jeremy Pruitt didn't want to play UCF. Now I have a feeling Josh Heupel doesn't want to doesn't want any part of UCF either. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> but my point is to go back to my original my point about being adaptive and creative. Again, you don't have to do two for ones. You don't have to do. You can do different things. You're telling me UCF's not going to make money if they were to play a Campy World against a major program or go to Atlanta and play in the opening kickoff in Atlanta. There are ways to make money yeah. beyond just playing seven home games, and I think that's the point I'm making here. There's more ways to you know make money than just being one dimensional, and I think Terry understands that more than Danny did. I think Danny yeah. got a little too aggressive there, and it backfired on him. And you know, I, I think fans can relate to that. I think, yeah, we no, we're not gonna take any home in it. But now you realize, like, wait a minute, we're playing who? What? When? Right. Are you kidding me? I, I think the other I think the other thing too, obviously you talked about using camping world to your advantage. I'm in favor of that, but if you make it part of a series, I think, you know, I think that goes back to the spat with Florida. Like there were discussions about and it was still unclear at the time, but but the 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 rumors were that Florida was like they wanted two in Gainesville and then one quote in Orlando, and the rumor was that that one in Orlando they wanted a camping world. And you know, if that's the case, if I'm you know if I was Danny White, I'd been like, no, 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 no. I want one game in our home stadium, right? I'll give you the one 
in Camping World, okay? And I'll give you the one in Gainesville, but I want one in, in the bounce house. And if that's what caused Florida or whoever else was may have been knocking on the door to stiff arm UCF, that's on them. But the fact is we've hosted several power conference teams in the bounce house before. Gotten really good television numbers, gotten really good attendance too, right? Remember yeah. when NC State came here with uh, Russell Wilson all those years ago? Yep. Right? Boston College came here. Uh, we talked about Stanford coming here before. Um, you know, North Carolina's on the slate. They're supposed to come here. We've seen we've seen Mizzou came here one year. There was a lot and, of and teams. I do think and, and some and I do think that is important. The brand still matters. Like casual fans, like the diehard fans are gonna go see UCF play Bethune and Connecticut and all that. Yeah. You, but you've got them hooked already. The casual fan is the one you're trying to draw. You're always trying to build. You're trying to grow. I mean, I became a UCF fan because I saw them play Nebraska. Remember, they led Nebraska mm-hmm. at halftime in 1997. The first UCF road game I ever went to was Death Valley and Clemson against Woody Danzler and yep. Clemson. I think Tommy Bowden was the head coach. There's something about brand names that still attracts casual people. And that's how you get more people to go to your school. And that's how you get more fans to become fans of your program. Now, I think the other thing that's going to be interesting to see here over the next five to 10 years, and I'll finish it off with this, finish the thought with this, is if the argument from schools like Georgia, like Florida, like Clemson, like in Alabama, like, uh, you know, take your pick out of the ACC or the Big Ten, um, it, or Miami, for example, is, well, your stadium doesn't hold enough fans, right, at 45,000. Then I think what you're going to see is how how much does this become the impetus for stadium expansion and maybe expand the stadium to 55, 60,000 in the future? Because that's always been kind of hanging off in the distance, right? One day we're going to expand the stadium – and if you can expand it to that size, then road team ticket allotments no longer a problem. You're only ten. What you'd only be if they expanded it to sixty, sixty-five thousand. You're only you're only about ten or fifteen thousand less than the current Citrus Bowl, and it's on campus. So then you're argu- then it's like, oh, look, we got a place where, we got a place where you can hang right here, you know. Right. So. That, that I think that's where the conversation will eventually go to is what's it going to take for UCF to eventually expand the bounce house add another 10 15,000 seats I, I think unless they get to a major big 12 type of conference or, or marquee schedule I think the problem I think to be honest with you with television the way it is and the streaming I think I don't think I think there's an advantage of not having a bigger stadium because there's more demand if you expand it there's sure. not as big of a demand for tickets I've seen that at other places where like it's one third empty because oh there's not the demand there so you got to be careful with that you know it, do you have enough fans to fill up sixty thousand yeah. you know not yeah as I, I think back now. to the Cincinnati game in eighteen yeah and the spectacle on national TV that that, mm-hmm. that was like it it did not feel like a game in a forty five thousand seat stadium when you watched it on TV it felt like sixty sixty five thousand and I'm sure you know to Cincinnati it it sure felt like that right. Because I know it yeah. felt like that to all of us, and um, and that's the thing that I think is, you know, do you want to preserve that kind of atmosphere at the expense of more seats, or do you want to open up the possibilities on your schedule? I don't know. It's not, it's not a bad problem to have when you think about it. 
So no, no. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what he can pull off, and then we'll react to it. And All right. Which is what we do, right? That's what That's we do right. on this podcast. Blackandgoldbanneret.com is where you want to go for all the latest on UCF sports. We'll be following track and field, of course, baseball with their game on Thursday, and then wherever else that they may go uh, in the American Championship. They've got to win it all in order to get to the NCAA tournament. So we're going to be following that table set for UCF baseball, 3 o'clock on uh, Thursday. So we'll be watching that and points thereafter. Of course, track and field, we talked about that. Thanks again to Dana Boone for joining us. Really a thrill to talk to her. We really appreciate her. Uh, spending time with us here on the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast if you don't already. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts if you're an iOS user. If you are an Android user, you can subscribe to us via Spotify. Leave a comment, leave a rating, tell us how we're doing. Uh, and then, uh, and also, if you already have done all that, share your share this podcast with uh, a fellow UCF fan of yours who doesn't subscribe to us. Uh, it really helps us out. Make sure you follow us at blackandgoldbanneret.com for all the latest on UCF sports. UCF underscore Banneret on Twitter and Facebook.com slash Black and Gold Banneret. You can also follow us individually. Jeff underscore Sharon, Eric Lopez, Elo. You can subscribe to our newsletter as well uh, at uh, on BlackandGoldBanneret.com. Thanks again to Jeremy Brenner for helping us out with that. Uh, thanks again to Bryson Turner for all the work that he's been doing. Danny Medina, Andrew Glukov, Andrew Glukov and all of us here at Black and Gold Banneret for uh, all the work that, we, that they've been doing. Luke Saris has been helping us out with um, updating the uh, NFL, um, uh, the uh, built-by-UCF NFL roster tracker and the uh, also the transfer portal tracker that we've been doing. So huge thanks to Luke on that. That's been great stuff. So we're still not done yet, folks. The Banneret Awards are coming up Woo! next couple of weeks. We'll be working on that over the course of this week, as well as following baseball and track and field. So for Eric, I'm Jeff. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Enjoy the week. Talk to you later.